Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome back to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The Big Move, and it is covering shows that were so successful off-Broadway that they just had to transfer to the Great White Way and try some luck over there. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts, and with me today is another BPN host. He's got his podcast with VPN, uh, Little Me, Growing Up Broadway. He's also been a guest on this podcast many years ago. Please welcome back Mark Tuminelli. Many years. Like a year, but in my <laughs> mind, it's been like, in my mind, I've known you for nine years, but that's simply not true. Well, it just, it does feel that way, doesn't it, Matt? <laughs> Knowing me just makes life seem a lot longer, don't it? No, it feels great. Knowing you has changed my world. That's so sweet. It's a lie, but he's on my podcast, so he's got to say nice things. Um, Why people do my podcast all the time and they don't say nice things. <laughs> well, you get people like Andrea McCardle and she's probably just like, what? So what? Who cares? So she's, what? She's the greatest. Smoked an e-cigarette the whole time. Ah, uh, what you, we do when we're an icon. Speaking of Andrea McCardle, she did a regional production of this show. Mark, what show are we talking about today? We're talking about you're in town. Your ticket should say you're in town. Yes, we're talking about Urintown, book by Brett Codis, music by Mark Holman, and lyrics by both gentlemen. Mark, what is your history with this show? Great. Um, I uh, was a 20-year-old, maybe I turned 21, when the show uh, was in previews. I saw it. I was obsessed with it. And then uh, 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. And um, I still lived in New York, obviously. And so... We there was this initiative in New York City where it was if you spent a hundred dollars in New York City at, at on anything, groceries, eating out at a restaurant, you could bring your receipts to New York and Company, and they would give you two tickets to any Broadway show. Mm. And I did that 
for you're in town like four times. So I saw you're in town a lot in the months uh, post 9-11. And um, I which was truly, it's like musical comedy perfection to me. So I have a great love for the show and I have never seen it again. I've never <laughs> seen a regional production. I've never seen a high school production. I've never directed it. I've never been in it. But I, I have a great love of that original Broadway cast mm. um, and production. I feel like you should stage at some point. I feel like that's that's a show for you to direct. Well, I'll be honest with you. I am on hold and I've been on hold for several weeks. I'm about, I think we're at eight weeks with the MTI um, who will not give me the rights to do this musical. So um, I sent an email to Greg last night and said, I would like to do Urinetown as our first show back at Broadway Workshop for our main stage. And uh, what I got is radio silence so far. Uh, what's he so damn busy with? I don't know, Beast but Nations? I would love to do it. And you very well be my main stage as long as they make that decision in the next five days, because I got to announce something. Absolutely. Well, I'm fingers crossed for you. You will know in the next five days by the time that this episode comes out. But as we're recording, we don't know. Uh, I have only seen amateur productions of Year in Town. I did not see it on Broadway, unfortunately. This was the season that I was really into Millie. And I was into oh, that. Oh, of course I, you were. I was a baby. Okay. It's just, I loved my... Millie so much, but I always liked the underdog show and you're in town's the underdog show. I usually going. am the underdog person. I just didn't know much about you're in town. I, I, it was right before I was about to start going to school in the city. I think if I had been going to school in the city at that point, I would have gone to see it. I, cause it would, it was just so around everywhere, but it was there for my first two years at PCS. And I remember seeing ads all the time and it would say you're in town and they would underneath the title, they would, uh, phonetically spell out how it's pronounced. And then there'd be like little scribbles, like, is that really the title of the show? And blah, blah, blah. And the only person in my family who had seen it was my grandmother and she did not care for it. So everyone else <laughs> in my family was like, oh, we won't see it then. And then I saw the Tony performance and I thought it was, it looked really cool. But when you're, you know, 12, 13 years old, you are really kind of at the whim of the people who pay for the tickets. So I was not allowed enough voice to get anyone to go with me. And then it closed. And I remember the older theater kids around me were so into it. And they would sort of talk about moments in the show that they loved. Like, I remember I have a very distinct memory of Skylar Aston, then Lipstein, reenacting Officer Lockstock's slow mo run at the end of Act One uh, for me and a bunch of other people because he, he had just seen the show and he was talking about like just how funny it was. And I was like, that does sound really funny. I wish I had seen it. So I finally did get to see it at Everyone Take a Shot, Stage Door Manor. And then I saw it at two other schools and in regional production and finally got my hands on the bootleg that's now on YouTube. And I went, oh, right. This is how good the show can be. There's a very comprehensive original cast bootleg that I watched last most of last night <laughs> in prep for this. And it was so nice to revisit Old Town. Old Town. It's a it is a very wonderful bootleg and it's early enough in previews it's not it's like about two weeks before 9-11 happens but it's like it's it's the show is set at that point they didn't really make any major changes after this bootleg happened um, and the audience is like dying over themselves it's it's very rare that there's real musical comedy where it's like there's a joke every three seconds yes and you're in town delivers that in a way that very few shows can which is why I think I have a great affinity for the in the book and the score and you know these these brilliant people who brought these characters to life. 
Yeah. Well, it's all, it's also a very tricky show in a lot of ways because it is satirical and it's, it's a send up of the tropes of musical theater while still adhering to the structure of it all. And I think a lot of people, you're very lucky you never saw a school or amateur or regional production of it because all the non-Broadway productions I've seen, they don't, it's not that they don't trust the material. It's that they go too broad. Yeah. And uh, I was in my research the thing that all the actors from the original production talk about is that, you know, like the first day of rehearsal, John Rando, the director said, treat this like you're in an episode of law and order. It's very serious. And it's, you know, very earnest. Don't ever wink at the audience. Don't ever mug. Don't ever act like you're smarter than the material. It's so, because it's such an odd show and what the characters say are so odd. And you have, you know, officer Lockstock breaking the fourth wall all the time and talking about conceits in musical theater the only way it works is if you play it straight. And when you watch the bootleg of the original production, that is exactly. I mean, they're they are doing Medea. It is they are <laughs> so fun because, and that's why the audience is laughing so hard. Yeah. I mean, when you're, when they're saying my favorite joke in the show, and I don't know if that's like a question we'll get to. And I was remembering last night. I was like, is it coming? Is it coming? And it's, uh, she goes, when can I see you again? And he goes, my, my dear, in this light, you can't see me at all. Mm-hmm. Or in this darkness, you can't see me at all. And I'm like, that is exactly what i think is funny mm-hmm. and as a kid who grew up obsessed with airplane that movie and space balls like those two movies are my comedy north stars and you're in town was that on stage like every joke is self-aware without the actor ever being and if you go back and watch airplane which i suggest people do every six months just to remember that things can be funny mm-hmm. um is that you know it's like all of those jokes, you know, there's trouble in the cockpit. What is it? It's a small room in the front of the plane, but that's not important right now. Mm-hmm. That to me is what a joke is. <laughs> it's so good. The, the yeah, a- airplane is such a, a perfect uh, parallel to this. I, the, I was reading the New York Times review for it, and they were like, "It's three penny opera by way of South Park," and I think that's also very accurate because when you watch a good episode of South Park. What makes it so funny is all the voice acting is still very serious. The way Randy will go, Shelly! Like, it's just so <laughs> overdramatic and intense. And I'm thinking of Airplane and um, not Julie Haggerty, but the other stewardess who she's, you know, she's so scared and I'm 23 and I've never been married. And uh, the uh, one of the passengers comes up and says to the doctor, like, any idea what's going on? No, how are you doing? To be honest, I've never been so scared in my life. But at least I have a husband. <laughs> the yeah, just breaks like, down oh, and sobs, like so fully good. crying, tears in her eyes. That's, and it's brilliant. It's it's a perfect film. It is a perfect film. And you're in town is pretty perfectly structured as well. The, the interesting thing about it is neither writer has really done much since this show. At least nothing that nothing yeah. in New York that we've been able to see. I know that they're both based in Chicago, but there was talk of them doing other stuff. They were supposed to do a musical version of the man in the white suit, which is a British sci-fi satire film uh, that went nowhere. And then they were going to make a trilogy out of Urinetown. They were going to do a prequel called East nation, which had a production. Oh, I remember uh, that. Yes. Yeah. And it, Harriet it was, Harris and my friend, Joy Soprano was in that. Mm, it, it, it got, it got good reviews. They did anything in San Francisco and Chicago. I don't know if they ever did it here, but they did it here, I think, in the Fringe or, or yes, the Musical Theater Festival or something like that. Yeah, they did it at the Fringe again. Uh, and it, it, the response was solid, but nothing came of it. And then they never 
maybe they did write the third part, but not, no one's ever heard of it. But yeah, it's it's frustrating because it's such a good show and they are good writers. And I wish that we would hear more from them. But it's interesting we say The Fringe because that is how this show came to be. This is the off-off that leads to the off that leads to the Broadway. And that's what this series is all about. That's exactly what it's about. It's all from in a great way. Um, yeah, the, the origin of this piece. Well, actually, first of all, Mark, for those who don't know, what is You're in Town about? Um, You're in Town is about uh, a Gotham-like city that uh, has a severe water, water shortage. Water shortage. Uh, water shortage. And so all of the people have to pay to use the public bathroom. And so um, it's a it's really a, a story about um, haves and haves nots, mm-hmm. the upstairs, downstairs of, of it all. And these rich people who are making these decisions and these poor people who are kind of coming together to figure out how they're going to pay to pee and the um, uprising that comes out of that. And of course, there's a love story between the guy who's in charge of choosing this uh, pay to pee thing and uh, and the guy who's leading the revolution and this guy's daughter. You know, that was can I start over? Um, there's a Please lot. That start goes on. Over. <laughs> there's a lot that goes on. It is a musical. Yes. about people having to pay to pee and we are not that far off from that at any time here in america no. and so i think the show feels so relevant i love when people are like i'm doing cabaret it's more relevant than ever I'm like <laughs> all right we got it it'll yeah. never not be relevant it's never um, not it, gonna be relevant. It's, it's sort of uh that thing do you want me to read a description yeah read some description because left to your own devices you uh you're not oh, going to help anyone. You can just suck it. The description here on Wikipedia is really bad. <laughs> so I'm looking for a better description for you. Okay. Oh my God. All right. It satirizes the legal system, capitalism, socially responsibility, bureaucracy, corporate uh, mismanagement, and municipal policies. The show also parodies the musical Three Penny Opera, The Cradle of Rock, Les Mis, and the Broadway musical itself as a form. So let's just go with that. Yeah. Uh, The main characters, we've got Bobby Strong, who helps uh, Pennywise, Miss Pennywise. Uh, Is that her name? The clown from It. Yeah, (laughs) the clown from It. Imagine if the clown from It were a character in in, You're in Town. Uh, Bobby Strong helps regulate and takes uh, fees from the worst part of town that uh, at their public amenity. And his father gets carted off. Oh, so the other thing is, it's called urine. Whoa, down. whoa, whoa! You are not better at this than I am. I am not better. I'm not better. I am perpendicular. Um, but it's um the reason why it is called urine town. So everyone has to pay to use the to use their restrooms because of this drought that's been going on for thirty years. And there is a major company that's in charge of all the fees called Urine Good Company. And if you do not have a lot of funds then you have to then you know you have to go to the worst part of town to be able to pay for uh the toilet and if you don't pay if you choose to go into the bushes or something you are caught carted off by the authorities to what is called urine town and the joke part of the joke of the show is that no one ever knows what urine town is it's always referred to on the sly you know the police officers take people away and then you never hear about it ever again but because this show breaks the fourth wall and because Officer Lockstock uh, is the narrator of it, 
we do find out what you're in town is pretty early on. Just the rest of the cast does not until act two. And that's one of my favorite jokes in the show. Basically, anytime Officer Lockstock speaks, I am guffawing. And he enters and mentions you're in town. Welcome to you're in town. Not the place, of course, the musical. You're in town, the place. Well, it's a it's a bad place. A place you won't hear about until act two. And well, let's just say it's filled with symbolism and things like that. And Everyone's always talking about it. Bobby's father breaks the law and pees himself because he can't uh, afford the fee that that day. And they cart him off to Urinetown and this haunts Bobby. And this is ultimately what uh, inspires him to start the revolution, to rebel against Urine Good Company and have everyone pee for free. And he just so happens to fall in love on site with the daughter of uh, Caldwell B. Cladwell, the man who owns Urine Good Company and is in charge of all the fee hikes. And... There's That's another good. character. I, that was probably, I thought that was solid. That was actually pretty solid. Also, I don't think anyone's listening to this who doesn't know you're in town. You don't know. You never, ever know. I if you did. don't know you're in town, take a moment, watch the bootleg, and then pick back up and right pick here. Back up right from, yeah. And minute, whatever we're at. Minute 9,000. I had to do a, a, a Q&A event that was Hamilton-themed with actors from Hamilton. And we were talking about the show. And the... Liaison, about town. no, 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 about Hamilton, and the liaison for this event from the uh, from the company that we were, you know, doing this for. She asked me on the side, "Can you do a brief plot description of Hamilton for people who don't know?" And I said to her, "Everyone's here for a Hamilton event. I assumed everyone knew what Hamilton was. Like, the, if everyone requested it, isn't it because they know it?" She's like, "Well, some people might have shown up just to do something today." I was like, "What is your company? What are people?" So, yes, to don't quote, talk about that. You work there. <laughs> I don't work there. I worked there for that day. The well, yes, let's 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 take Mark's uh, side on this, guys. If you don't know you're in town that well, you can take our s- terrible, terrible summaries and then I, go I, off. And... I thought my I stand by my summary. I'm sorry. Okay, well, someone's got to. So, <laughs> pause. We're go having fun. Watch the perfect, watch the absolutely perfect bootleg and then come back and we'll, and listen to us talk about it. I also love everything with Lockstock and Little Sally, the side character, Little Sally, who is like a street urchin, like street kid, latchkey kid kind of person. And they're always sort of talking about the structure of the show, as well as the politics that's going on in it. And the two things I really love are when little Sally mentions hydraulics. We don't mention, we don't talk about hydraulics all that much, do we? And he, and he explains to her how musicals work, like how a parent would talk about how babies are made. You see little Sally sometimes in a musical. And then when she asks about you're in town, is it, uh, uh, either she asks like, is it scary or something? And he says, I can't tell you about it, little Sally. We're too like we're too early in the show. I can't just you know blurt out there is no urine town. We just kill people. No, I can't do that. And it's such a wonderful moment because you watch Spencer Caden in the bootleg, and she definitely registers what Officer Lockstock has just said. But because of how the musical needs to work, she has she pretty much forgets about it pretty quickly. But you definitely watch Buster Kanan's face when Jeff McCarthy just fucking blurts out, there is no urine time. We just kill people. Can we talk about Spencer Caden for 30 seconds? While we can talk there? about every single original cast member for 45 seconds. 
Okay, well, Spencer Caden gave one of the greatest comedic female performances I've ever seen on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And I was such like, I just rooted for her so much that year and that Tony season. And also like, I remember uh, some quote she said like six months ago, I was working at a desk job and now I'm nominated mm-hmm. for a Tony Award. Mm-hmm. And as someone who was working at a desk job, um, and that's all like I wanted to do at the time. I found her very inspiring. Of course, she didn't do a whole lot after and neither did I. So, um, you know, but in the moment, boy, was I, you know, rooting for that girl and her brilliant, brilliant performance in the show. She was on Broadway again in a show at the Roundabout a few seasons yeah, later. Don't Dress for Dinner, which she was nominated for a Tony again. She does a lot of voice work. I, I looked up because Good. I also was I, sad I that she only want the best for Spencer Caden. Yeah. I'm I'm checking on her wiki. Oh, she's, she's married to Mark Harlick. Harlick. She's much older than I. Any yeah, idea. she was 33, I think, when oh my God, was on Broadway. That's wild. Okay. Yeah. Well, and so she's the only cast member from the Fringe production that made it to Broadway because the role of Little Sally was written for her. Yeah, but uh, that doesn't mean sometimes things get written for people in there. Oh, the I, I know. I know. Oh, that's she a really whole dramatic made it thing. through the rain. Oh, there are two things I want to make sure that we talk about with this show, because there's there's some backstage drama with this show that maybe some listeners aren't aware of. Uh, quite a few lawsuits after Urine Town closed on Broadway. But then on top of that, some drama on the way to Broadway, because uh, so let me let me set the scene for y'all. Picture it. It's Europe, circa 1995, and Greg Codis is part of the uh, Neo-Futurists, which is a Chicago-based performance troupe. They do a lot of political satire and shit like that, and he was, like, an aspiring playwright. And he stayed behind because he wanted to absorb the culture and eventually buy a an engagement ring for his fiance. And he started to run out of money pretty quickly, and he... Came he had three hundred dollars, and he wanted to stay. He wanted to stay in Paris for weeks, and like yep. go to Amsterdam. Three hundred dollars. That tells you what kind of man Greg Coaches is and was. And I, I listened to him in an interview on a podcast uh, a little while ago in prep for this. He's a very dry uh, person, and it makes absolute sense to me that at that time he was like, "I've got enough money to last me six months." No, Greg, no, you don't. And. There were public amenities in Paris, I think he said, where you had to pay in order to use the restrooms. And this, yeah, everywhere in London, I think he's, I think it was in London, uh, that everywhere is, you know, it's pay to pay to use yeah. the toilet. Some are nice, yeah. some are crappy. Yeah. And well, and yeah. part of the reason it was, uh, to keep homeless people from, uh, set, basically setting up camp in those establishments. And he, there were days when he said he had to decide if he was going to pay for a sandwich for you know his meal for the day or if he was going to pay to go to the bathroom. And he was like, that's a really interesting conundrum to have. I should write that down. And then he said, imagine if this came to America, the like what chaos that would cause. And then he t- realized because he is uh, very political and environmentally conscious, he was like, you know, that is something we, were gonna, we have to think about for the future. And that kind of gave him the idea of, well, what if some giant uh, monopolizing corpora- corporation in America was in charge of all the fees for these public amenities? That would be a disaster. And he goes, well, that sounds like a really good idea for a musical because it's too weird to be a play. And he, <laughs> which I love his reasoning, is like, too weird to be a play. That, that has to be, be a musical. musical. Yeah, yeah, that's got to be a musical. Um, and he doesn't really like musicals all that much, he said. He always thought they were kind of odd and and silly. But he knew Mark Holman, who was an aspiring composer, and they, you know, they knew each other from uh, college, and they were both Chicago-based. So they spent the better part of like three years writing "You're in Town," and they were trying to get it, you know, 
produced anywhere in Chicago and no theaters would produce it. They all were like, listen, we like this, but our subscribers average about 95 years old. We can't do your show. And as luck would have it, he did reach out to John Clancy, who was the head of the New York International Fringe Festival at the time. And Clancy was like, yeah, submit it. We could probably do it. And he did. And they were able to uh, put it up. And things progressed pretty quickly from there. David Auburn, who uh, eventually would write Proof, uh, saw the show and got uh, his New York producer friends to come see it. And remember that name, guys, because we are going to cover Proof in a later episode of this season, because that is also an off-Broadway to Broadway transfer. And they spent about two we're years covering of work- plays now. We, we've been covering plays. They're just harder to do because they're not always bootlegs. Some people don't want to read the scripts. So far, we've covered Torch Song Trilogy. But yes, will... I, I did see that episode. Yes, yes, with Mama, which for anyone who listened to that episode knows uh, major parallels to my life in that play, which we did not expect until we were sitting there watching it. And my mom just kept turning to me throughout all of international stud being like, hmm, hmm, mm-hmm. see anything you recognize, bitch? I'm like, yes, bitch, now watch the play. Uh, the drama I was referring to is that uh, Spencer Caden was the only actress from the Fringe production who got to transfer to the off-Broadway production at 54th Street because the Broadway producer said, we want to recast this with all Broadway talent and we want to get a Broadway director. And the writer said, okay, well, then we would like extra time to develop it. And there was a lot of tension about that because, you know, Holman and Codis wrote the show with a lot of their friends in mind who got to do the show at the Fringe. And it sucks when, you know, you are a part of something at the ground level and it's written for you and it goes off without you, without a second thought. And uh, the director of the Fringe production was uber pissed and waited the solid mm, five years to sue because... (laughs) He claimed that uh, John Rando and John Crawfa stole a lot of his staging and ideas for the Broadway production. And he said he didn't have the guts to file a lawsuit until they filed their own lawsuit. We'll talk about that lawsuit later on. Do you know about that lawsuit? I don't know a lot about that. This is very exciting. The The lawsuit that uh, Rando and Crawfa filed against two oh, different about, regional productions. Yes, that was the Jen Cody production at mm-hmm. the Carousel Dinner Theater. I yes, do know yes. that my really dear friend was Little Sally in that production. Um, and I remember that being a very big dramatic thing of people staging You're in Town with the exact Broadway staging mm-hmm. following the Broadway closing and the national tour and the, um, the you know, the professional rights being released. Yeah, um, there was, there was yes, a second theater. lawsuits. Yeah, there was a second theater that did it as well, and they yeah, sued both. And they they were like talking about you know how it was copied exactly, like basically everything down to the T. And after they filed that lawsuit, uh, Joseph McDonald, the original director from the French production, is like, "Well, now I feel brave enough to file my own lawsuit against them." And it's God. it feels like a South Park episode in itself, or like Roger from American Dad, yes, uh, like just suing people for. Ideas he had 20 years ago. It's like, oh, we can sue people now? Fantastic. Here I go. But I don't know if you all, if you know this as well. When they were doing these readings and workshops of Year in Town uh, before going to Off Broadway, what was the name of that theater? The one that's on the Off Broadway Theater. It's yeah. on. It's a fifty. It's on Fifty Fourth Street. It's the theater, the American Theater of Actors, or the Actors yeah. American Theater. 
And um, it's above the police station. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to last year because I thought we would do, I wanted to do You're in Town as our, as our main stage last spring back at that theater. Mm. And so I met with the guy who runs it, who's uh, like, he may have passed away six or eight years ago and no one let him know yet. <laughs> and he doesn't have a computer. He has a phone and paper everywhere. And he's a really nice guy. And I, and I, I, I rented two weeks of the theater with him and I was waiting for the rights year in town and I was waiting and I'm still waiting because they have this New York hold on doing the show or something. And um, when I called him back, he had rented the theater to someone else because legitimately he uses a rotary phone. Oh my but, God. Um, it's so it's that kind of theater. He built it. Yeah. Um, and it was, and all of that you're in town scaffolding is still there and up and that's, you know, was wound up being the design for the Broadway transfer, but mm-hmm. that all happened at the American theater for actors above the courthouse on 54th street. And I can yep. see it from my apartment. <laughs> yes, you can. Cause you are in the hood, but uh, Jennifer Laura Thompson talks about sort of that whole off Broadway experience. You know, it, it's not really a theater. Like it wasn't built to be one. So the backstage areas and you know, everyone's just sort of like in a giant tent. And you can hear anytime like someone flushes a toilet, you can hear it like from all over the place. So it worked very well for that show. But when they were doing these workshops and readings, basically everybody but Nancy Opal thought it was terrible and wanted out of it. And they only, everyone kept doing, uh, kept sticking with it because most of their like agents and managers, I guess, had seen it at Fringe. And they're like, no, you don't understand. Like, this is going to be very good. This is going to be very good for you. And the only person who was really in the original off-Broadway to Broadway production who was Broadway talent who was you know established enough that they probably could walk away was John Cullum everybody else was sort of you know of the community but no one was like Hunter Foster Jennifer Laura Thompson were not really names yet she Jeff McCarthy was kind is kind of you know I I mean I would say was the second biggest star yeah he was like the godfather of cult musicals for Broadway with Sideshow and Smile and you know he'd been around but he wasn't huge uh he had i guess with 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 sideshow he could sort of attract some of those fans to come see it nancy opal had been semi-retired at that point so she kind of came out of retirement to do it and that sort of revitalized her career jennifer laura thompson was a very you know consistently working actress but while footloose was a big get for her it didn't really like put her in the high echelon of young actresses No, because she was like a soprano playing a belty teenager she had just gotten off the national tour of carousel and then the next thing she did was Footloose on Broadway. Yeah. And I don't know where in the world is it Julie Jordan and um, Ariel, whatever her last name is. I won't be on your Footloose episode. I can tell you that tonight. Ariel, what's her last name? That's, Moore. I mean, that's... Ariel Moore. Ariel I Moore. I know it. There you God, did know it. Look at you. I'm disgusting. I'm going to the roof of my building and jumping off because this knowledge is so like, I should be like, I should know about, you know, political things and i could tell you ariel's last name if you give me 30 seconds if i could i've always said if i could make my brain understand law or medicine i would be so rich and so successful but unfortunately like that science does not compute in my brain unfortunately uh i have challenged myself to learn more about those things because knowing should well you should as someone who's a little a mite older than you i know everything i'm going to know just, just, a, just a smidgen older. There's nothing anyone can teach me. Keep going. This, this is true. I've tried and you slapped me across the face in public every time I've tried to teach you happy, something. Happy to stand by that. Yep, absolutely. Um, right. but, no, but like they, 
everyone who else was in it was of the Broadway community, but not like really of such standing that they could really afford to walk away. They all had a one week out during that original off-Broadway production and all throughout the rehearsal process, everyone just was always aware that they had the one week out. And at one point, a producer, one, the Dodgers, because the Dodgers came on for the off-Broadway run, which was sort of helped give the show some buzz when it was off-Broadway. That's when the Dodgers were Dodgers. When the, back in the day when the Dodgers were Dodgers, they, someone from the Dodgers came in to like watch, sit through a rehearsal and apparently one of them said like, oh, you know, we all know you have the two week out. And Jeff McCarthy shouted very loudly. No, it's one week. Nope. One week. You gave us one week. <laughs> he said we could we could quit. Uh, we could give you one week notice. Something like that. And apparently that's sort of how was how everybody felt. And, you know, they just they would stand there in rehearsals and just like ask each other, like, is this funny? And only Nancy Opal's Spencer Caden had to be like, no, this is funny. Like, believe me, like this is going to kill. And it wasn't until the first performance they did it and uh jeff mccarthy said and uh john Coleman said you know it wasn't until that first performance they realized they were not a good show it took literally the very first laugh from the audience for them to go oh i guess i'm not in like the worst thing of all time and luckily they and then they all kind of stuck with the show for a long time because even after it opened on broadway a lot of them did the whole two and a half year run or like they left and then they came back yeah, I think it was, I mean, it was so well received mm-hmm. and, um, you know, there was, there was a lot of excitement about it. And once I'm sure they got to Broadway and also it was such a crazy time after mm-hmm. 9-11 to be in a show like that, that honestly was joyous and funny and smart was, it was really nice in contrast to Millie, which was big old fashion musical, the some like it hot of that year. And, um, you know, it had a lot. I loved Millie had so much going for it. Mm. Um, and then there was this great brother, brother, sister on Broadway story that, you know, we hadn't seen much of, and it was like, he's the star of this and she's the star of this. And they're up for Tony's. And it was like, yeah. it just, it felt like it felt well, their shows were up for Tony's Hunter famously was not nominated. Oh yeah. Year. It's not nominated. Yeah. Hunter and Jeff, uh, Jeff McCarthy not being nominated for this show is one of the biggest what the fucks for me. Yeah, that is shocking. Can you tell me who was nominated that year? It was Mamma Mia. Ma- so Mark, <laughs> can I tell you what was nominated that year? First of all, I'm not even looking at any Wikipedia or papers. He's so not? For Jeff McCarthy's category or for musical? Because I can tell you about I want to know his category. Jeff McCarthy's category. Shuler Hensley for Oklahoma, who won. Okay. Um, who was probably always going to win because he won the Olivier. And yeah. there was all the buzz about like, he's the judge that redefines the role. Mark Kudish for Millie. Okay. Brian Darcy James for Sweet Smell of Success. Oh. Um, Greg Edelman for Into the Woods. Oh. Yeah. And then uh, Greg Edelman, Brian Darcy James, Mark Kudish, uh, Shuler Hensley. And then who's the fifth? Um, I mean, four out of five ain't too bad. There, no, oh, it's God. pretty good. Yeah. But, but fuck, who is the fifth? I don't know. Because that was. Because that was, was anyone, it couldn't have been anyone in Mamma Mia. There was no, no, Mamma Mia. It was Louise Petra and Judy Kay. Those are the ones from Mamma Mia who got nominated. It's, it's a uh, sweet, small success, Mamma Mia, Millie. Oh, Gavin Creel, didn't he get nominated for actor? He got nominated for actor. Oh, lead. Wow. Yeah, lead actor. That, okay. So, lead actor, I can tell you, it's um, John Lithgow for sweet, small success, Gavin Creel for Millie, uh, Patrick Wilson for Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> uh john mcmartin for into the woods and then um john cullum for year in town yes god who was the fifth one for oh norbert leo butts for thou shalt not oh thou shalt not 
all Never I forget. know from I all I know from that one is tugboat. Tugboat. Um, I make Rochelle Rock talk to me about it every time I see her. I would love to meet Rochelle Rock and ask her about that. Oh Sheldon. God, she's just the greatest. Shout out to Rochelle Rock's new single drop swing available now on Spotify. Play it. Get ready for your night out. Well, Try if you're getting tired in the car, put on drop swing. That's nothing. My single, my single is dropping, is dropping. <laughs> for any 30 Rock fans out there, my single, my single is dropping, is dropping. My single is dropping, is dropping. All right. Yeah. Carry so, on. Carry on. So yeah, Jeff, Jeff McCarthy did not make it in there and he- It's a crime. It is a crime and he'll tell you. Hell, it's a hard, cold tumble of a journey worthy of a gurney, a bumble down, a slapped face, smacked with a mace, certain to debase as I stumble down. It's a path that will lead you only one place, horrible to retrace, a crumble down, a hard, cold tumble of a journey, trouble of a journey to your in town. I mean, he's also a very sexy motherfucker. Very tall, good looking dude. You know, he's Michigan J Frog. I don't have to tell you that. Michigan J Frog? What? So the WB um, used to have a frog. Michigan Wait, J yes, frog, yes, yes. With the top and he hat. Sing and have a top hat, and that's Jeff McCarthy. No fucking way. Yeah. That must have paid for his kids' college. I think it probably did. Yeah, because Sideshow and Smile sure didn't. They sure did not. Sure did not. Um, but yeah, this show is interesting because as you said, you know, with, with nine 11, there was all this buzz coming from off Broadway to Broadway. It was, a, it was a big hot ticket off Broadway. And then there was excitement about this, you know, bold original musical. It was weird, but it was good. It was all this Broadway talent with a lot of people who were sort of like just waiting to sort of break through and become stars. And this was going to be the show that did it. Cause everyone in this original company is just like really strong character-based actors with like amazing voices. You got Nancy Opal and Jennifer Laura Thompson who sing so amazingly well. And her, let's pause for a hot quick second. Yeah. Jennifer Laura Thompson is perfection in everything. Mm -hmm. But this show in particular, that level of like, just first of all, gorgeousness Mm -hmm. and then the comedy chop and then that voice. It's like, bang, bang, bang. You've hit it out of the park, sister act. Absolutely. Absolutely no. star. She has a gorgeous voice, beautiful soprano with a with a glorious mix and chest. And she uses it in so many different colors in the show. Like you listen to her in Follow Your Heart, and then you listen to her in um I See a River or Follow I the River. See a called, river floating the freedom. freedom. It's so She's good. So smart. I mean, to be an ingenue who's funny is mm-hmm. like, you know, there, there are 10 of them. And like on Earth, Lord Benanti. Yeah. Um, her, I'll, I'll think of some more. Yeah, there are but... eight other examples. No, it's part. Yeah. It's hard to tell which ingenues are funny and which aren't because there are so few funny ingenue roles, yeah. and so there are not many opportunities. And what makes Hope such a great character? I was listening to I was, in my research for this. I was listening to other podcasts about it, trying to like get some more historical facts. And there are a lot of this... Urinetown podcasts. Well, theater podcasts that talked about Urinetown. Imagine if there was a podcast that was just solely about you're in town. Every week, another every week is a different second of you're in town discussed. But no, I was listening to one. They were sort of talking about how they felt that Bobby and Hope were the least interesting characters of the show. That, you know, oh, if I had my druthers, I would be little Sally or Officer Lockstock any day of the week. I'm like, you're not special. Those are two amazing roles. But I would argue you're in town has like half a dozen or eight, you know, amazing roles. And Hope and Bobby are two amazing roles they're not bland they play up on the fact that ingenue and juvenile roles tend to be bland but they are very funny 
wonderful roles. And all you have to do is listen to Jennifer Laura Thompson's line deliveries in Follow Your Heart, where she goes, of course you wouldn't, because then you'd be dead. Or when they're, when they're connected. So like, when she, my favorite joke of hers is um, when he's talking about the bunny and she goes, actually, I don't think they do. When he's like, bunnies, they drive a car. And she's like, actually, I don't think they like, just so serious. Yeah, she, don't think she, do. yeah, she's so deterrent about it. The song Mark is referring to is when uh, it's Hope is, and her father are told that the poor are uprising and Hope, because she just came from the most expensive university in the world, has all this empathy. She wants good in the world. And so when her father is showing his true colors of being a mean-spirited, you know, monopolizer, he's convincing her how life isn't fair and using the song, Don't Be the Bunny. Like, you're either the schmuck or you're not. And he's using the bunny as the image. But she's taking it always at face value when he's talking about, like, a bunny in a toll booth. She goes, but daddy, bunnies don't drive cars. Don't drive. Don't. And you're like, don't they hope? And she goes, no. As a matter of fact, I don't think they do. Like, she's so... <laughs> Did she's you so... put that into the podcast right here? Oh, so it's all I'm going in. It's it. all going in. A little bunny at a toll booth. You heard me. But daddy, bunnies don't drive cars. <laughs> don't they? No. Actually, I don't think they do. Live long enough, Hope, dear. You see many things. Even a daughter doubting her father? They're just so unaware that they're commenting oh. on their own situation, which is this whole point of you're in town. No one's ever supposed to be knowingly commenting. And the whole follow your heart sequence, which is the scene where Bobby and Hope fall in love very quickly. They're playing up on the tropes of like how in so many Golden Age musicals, characters fall in love very quickly. And or in, or in Hallmark movie. Or, or in Hallmark, Lindsay yeah. Lohan's Christmas. Any Christmas movie. Travaganza. I can't, I haven't watched it yet. I don't watch Christmas movies till after Thanksgiving. I can't. You know wait. what? I stand by that. Um, and I don't like, listen, if you got your Christmas tree up before Thanksgiving, I need you to look inward. <laughs> exactly. Look at your life. Look at your choices. Don't be the bunny. Yes. I, but I can't wait for the Lindsay Lohan. What's it called? Falling for Christmas. Falling for Christmas. Don't I worry. She wait. gets amnesia. <laughs> she still wait. knows the lyrics to every Christmas song. Of course she do. Her own name. I was like midway through the movie. I'm like, is she a mermaid? Like she doesn't know how to do anything. It's, it's hilarious. Look over there. Oh my God. How are we on? And what might they be? Um, but so in follow your heart, the Bobby and hope are talking about, you know, their, their emotional openness, you know, Bob, Bobby's feeling dejected because he basically sent his father off to God knows where we know to send his father off to die. And at first they're talking about their hearts in the metaphorical sense, right? I don't know how to listen to my heart. And then it just gets very literal, but they still connect in that way. And I love it very much. And when she's listening to Bobby's heart quite literally, and they connect because she realizes that her heart was it was saying just the other day what his heart was saying. And, and their dialogue just ramps up and up. And he goes, I didn't know two hearts could speak as one. And Jennifer Lawrence I didn't goes, either. And she goes, I didn't either. <laughs> it's so good. She I didn't mean to steal your joke, but I had to. It's so good. It's so good. She yeah. just screams it. I didn't sir. Until now. Or also when she's when she listens to his heart for the first time, she's like, let me give it a try. And there's a long pause. He goes, Do you hear any? <laughs> Shush. I mean, it's great writing, yeah. but it's perfect delivery. So it's like, yeah. you know, that uh, it's such a gift for I, I you know, a young ingenue to get to try to they have the jokes, whereas if in in wild contrast to Laura Benanti making everything funny and she loves me, which is not particularly funny, yeah. that 
to me is like, that's a much harder job, but here and you're in town, you get, you get the jokes. You just got to yeah. land the plane. It shouldn't be that hard. Exactly. If you play it earnestly and sort of get out of the show's way, it will reward you immensely. If you try to make it funny, you know, you'll sunk. you'll still get well, you'll but still get laughs. Like, the honestly, show that's most comedies. It's like you you know that's like the acting thing. You're playing it seriously. It has to be life or death for you. Mm-hmm. And you know if it's not, we're we're com- we're commenting. Then we're in Forbidden Broadway or something. We're commenting on what the joke is, and uh, the actor needs to know what it is, but yeah. the character can't. Yeah, it's as just- an actor, you have to figure out at what pitch you're setting the emotions at so it's not so much that it's like oh jesus but yeah you also can't you do you do not want to show the audience that you are smarter than the material that you know it's funny it's we're it, situation comedies are the way they are because we're laughing at the antics of characters who are in situations that are just so ridiculous and that's what makes this original company so good because that's how they all play it the way i mean nancy opal's line deliveries even every time she talks about get your head out of the clouds bobby strong Get your head out of the clouds. Oh, Bobby, what's become of you? What's become of us all? I also love when it's revealed that uh, Pennywise, that's that's her last name, right? Miss Pennywise? Yeah. Yeah. When, Penny, when you find out that Pennywise is Hope's mother, which is another joke I love that not enough people find as funny as I do because Hope is her my daughter and I'm her mother. I just, I love the separate, they are There's separate There's like a very big pause hope is yeah. my daughter <gasps> and i am her mother <gasps> bigger <gasps> yeah exactly it has to be, the joke has to be the second one has to be much bigger right exactly uh what is your favorite song in the show mark um i was just looking up something for to bring up but um i would say my favorite musical number in this musical <laughs> sweet i want to look at all of my song options um there are quite a few there are quite a few. I mean, I think the finale is really quite good. Um, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to the cast album. Um, I should be ready for this question. There are a million uh, questions you should be ready for. There's a million questions I should be ready for. Okay. Um, I mean, yeah, I think I see a river is probably the best thing in the show. And um, I think also maybe um i guess follow your heart i mean i'm a i'm a big fan of of the ingenue in a, in a musical and their moments yeah um and also like this is what i will say about this and you can do a little edit so that all was better but what i will say about this is that this isn't like the world's greatest score to listen to it doesn't I it's fun to listen to every few years. It'll pop in. I'm like, oh, I want to hear you're in town again. And that those songs are a bop or that song's really great, but it's not a score. I'm like, I must listen to yeah. on a monthly basis. You know, it's not a for me a bridges or a blood brothers in the way that I'm like, I love this score. But I think it's great and it's perfect for what this is. So uh yeah, that's where I am. <laughs> Sorry, blood brothers. Um that score is so good. You're out of your mind. Maybe. Call me what you will. But no, the thing about this score, I mean, it's the score is reminiscent of Kurt Vile and uh Blitzstein with Cradle of Rock. You know, it's it is three penny opera meets Cradle of Rock meets uh West Side Story and Blame Is with like a little bit of fiddler involved with um what is your in town. And Vi- like 
vile with his time with Brecht. Like again, the three penny opera is a is a genius score, but it's not a score you sit around like bopping. Correct. You're not giving it yeah. a listen. No, I show me the person that says I do my household chores to Mahagoni, and I will show you a sociopath. <laughs> And that is, that's, yeah, like, I I love Viola, but like of all of his scores, I'm listening to, you know, Lady in the Dark over anything, because that's more like Broadway-y. And so You're in Town is definitely kind of Viola Blitzstein light. And there are, and it's, there are other songs that have different inflections. But yeah, like, there are certain songs that I will have no problem listening to on repeat. Like, I'll listen to Nancy Opal, Fucking Slay, Privilege to Pee over and over again it's thrilling and carolee was also so good in that show i i uh, wish i'd seen carolee i wish i'd seen yes. victoria clark i wonder what she was i don't like. remember i don't think i i must have not seen her because i have no recollection of seeing her in the show so um yes yeah but it had to have been different she certainly doesn't sing like that she doesn't well and so i think i'm not sure what the reasoning behind it was because it's not like victoria clark was a name she was a known in the community a broadway mainstay yes exactly if you would yeah she did about two years before piazza and again like i said you know this original company either you had people who stayed the entire run or people who you know were there for a year and a half left for a minute and then came back nancy opal was in the show for you know about a year and a half and then victoria clark did it for about five months and then carolee carmelo closed out the show uh from what Nancy Obel talks about, the original voice type for Pennywise was the Victoria Clark type. Like they originally wrote it to be much more classical soprano. So it was like, the good Lord made sure that we piss each day because they were trying to lean into that classical sound. And when they brought in Nancy for the uh, first reading and they were teaching her the song, she, I guess, because, you know, it was very short notice and she was a little out of practice. She didn't want to have to worry about her placement. And she's Nancy Opal. So she's like, oh, I'm just going to belt it. And the writers were like, um, sure, go ahead, I guess. Sure, that's and she, thrilling. Yeah. Well, the way she describes it, she like came in for her audition for the reading, working with the music director on it. And they're like, and the, they, they get in the room and the music director turns to the writers and goes, um, so just fair warning, Nancy has decided she's going to belt all of it. And the writer's response was like, uh, I guess like have that probably it's probably gonna blow and then she did it and they're like cool so never change and yeah. we're gonna do it that way forever and we'd like to cast you what is your favorite song in the in the musical um to listen to probably follow your heart or the act one finale act to, one finale yeah the act one finale I, I mean I think that act one finale is just so well built uh I also, but to watch, especially the original staging of it, I love to watch Snuff That Girl because it's such, it is one of my favorite moments of choreography because, and I don't like, I'm not a John Carafa stand by any means. I thought, you know, he's are, the man. Are there, are there ones? <laughs> Actually, Mark, well, just not. because it's like so niche, like, yeah. oh my God, you know what I'm a stand of? 
Well, so like, you know this he he had this in Into the Woods of the same season, and then followed it up with John Rando with Dance of the Vampires. And the thing about Dance Which of the Vampires, did you? Oh, I saw all of those things. Yeah. Oh God, I I sometimes I wish I was you. I but... wish that you were alive in the nineties because in that same way, there just was like nothing was better than like nineteen ninety four. You know, like yeah, well, it never quite got as good again. I I fear if I were a New York City going teenager in 1994, I would have seen that carousel so many times. Oh my god, that Audra and Sally would have put out a say what? You would have still be at the theater. Yeah, I would I would have died there. Sally Murphy and Audra McDonald and Michael Hayden would have had restraining orders put out against me. Uh so I know I'm seeing downstate at Playwrights tomorrow simply. Honestly, they should consider taking them out now. Oh, I am very respectful. How dare you? I am seeing Downstate because Sally Murphy is in it, but I will not wait around for her. I will go see it. I'll support it and I'll leave. I'm All a very right, respectful great. stalker. I'm going in two weeks or next week. Maybe I'm going next Tuesday. I know. Uh, I'm seeing Anne Juliet next Tuesday, but I'm going that's... tomorrow to opening. Oh, well, look at you. She's very famous. She I... had to get a PCR test to go. So they, don't want, they don't want to miss his Doubtfire opening night disaster no. on their hands. Um, Oh, but so uh, snuff that girl. You're, you're saying Arthur Junker office choreography. Dance. Sorry, go yeah. back to well. You. Well, there there are because that's the following season when Dance of the, Dance of the Vampires happened. There is a certain group of teenage theater fans when I was growing up were like taboo. Like if you were the taboo kind of kid, you were and not like not just taboo fans, like teenage taboo fan. There was Got a it. certain kind of intensity about you. And that was also a carryover from Dance of the Vampires, weirdly enough. And I had a couple of quote-unquote dancer friends. I put dancer in quotations because just because you go to a dance class doesn't make you a dancer. But they were huge Dance of the Vampire fans because they kept on saying, say what you will about the plot. You've never seen dancing like it before. And so for like my entire high school career, I would always just hear about how John Carafa was like the most underrated choreographer on Broadway. All right, well, and possible, po- possibly. But what does make a good argument for him is his choreography for Snuff That Girl, where he pays huge homage to Cool in West Side Story to the point where, like, they do the they the do jump, the run and the jump, do the run jump. But there's a whole thing about the snapping that they do in like the in one of the major breaks. Yeah, that and they're all snapping like not in time and. <laughs> just like angry about it it's yeah. it's pretty genius it is it's very genius it, what he talked about with choreographing urine town was that it was it was trial and error and of throwing things out and seeing what works but the the main idea every time he was choreographing a number was i want the choreography to sort of just be beyond the reach of the actors to make it feel like these real people in a musical who think that they're Sid Charisse and Fred Astaire, but don't really have the mm-hmm. ability. So he's like, I don't want them to look bad. I just don't want it to look amazing. So they would they would figure out exactly like what was too easy and what was too hard and try to find the middle ground. So Snuff That Girl is, you know, we got Jen Cody, who is a dancer, but like everyone else who's mostly character actors trying to do their best version of cool. And they commit so hard to it. As you said, like it's angry snapping. It's angry jazz movements and we have speaking of sideshow we've got um ken jennings as hot blade harry who also is you know uh old man strong in act one but i was watching when the cabaret talk about this where they were 
figuring out the attitude for Snuff That Girl, what everyone should do and how they should be acting when they're not dancing. And John Rando turns to Ken Jennings. He goes, okay, so Hoplade's Harry. He's evil, but he's evil in a musical. So what does that look like? <laughs> and Ken Jennings, who's like, you know, dad bod squat man, like short Irish man, the original Tobias in, in Sweeney Todd. Yeah, he's like literally four foot 11. Yeah, but like but four foot 11 with, you know, like a thick bill. Yeah, he's a thick body. Yeah. And so daddy, he, hey, daddy. And so he decided, well, I think, and he's also Irish. So he's like, I think that evil bevels. And so he would take his hands and like put them on his on his abdomen on, but like with the I you no one can see me only Mark can see me right now with like his hands sort of oh, this squashed isn't, this isn't aired live sadly no I don't have the means but his like hands squished in on his abdomen like pigeon chest while always like beveling really harshly so it was it's never like, it was like imagine your dad in Chicago that's what it looked like yeah but like so your funny. dad but like your dad on stage really pissed off in Chicago like he's being <laughs> he like he's in cell block tango your dad is doing cell block tango full-on uh no irony whatsoever so it's that kind of energy so when you watch it like you listen to it and it is a bop especially in that like the drum section and the dance break but you watch it and you're like this is fucking genius Uh, who's your favorite character in you're in town? Um, I'm gonna go hope. I oh. I think it it's just uh, JLT. Yeah, um, was so transformative to me, and I became a lifelong fan of hers after seeing her in that show. Mm-hmm. And um, I I love I love her commitment to being good and how it just doesn't work out for her um, yeah. ultimately. And uh, I just think the character is so interesting. And, you know, I always sort of pick, uh, it's normally a female lead when I'm directing something to like really see the show through and hope is that for me. And then Lily's little Sally is a close second. Um, I can't think of any musical where I would tell you the man is my favorite character. It is rare for me as well. when the male character is my favorite character. I will, this might be one of the few exceptions. And part of it is, the performance of Jeff McCarthy, but part of it also is he, all of his scene work with Little Sally that makes Officer Lockstock maybe my favorite character. And I mean, I, I don't listen to his song when I'm listening to the score. Yeah, I, listen no, to, I listen to Hope stuff. That's a skip. Yeah. Well, I know I like the song, but it's but yeah, it's a skip. No, if I, I was li- watching it, it's fine. It's a fun number. Yeah. All the flashlights I remember, maybe. I yeah, skipped no, tweet. Yeah, lot, last yeah, night when I was watching Act One, I fast-forwarded through that. I was like, I'm not watching this shit. It's midnight. At least you're consistent. No, of all like the music stuff, Hope's definitely my favorite. And yes, I, maybe it's because I'm secretly an ingenue in my heart. I want to do like a whole concert of ingenue songs. And I mean, JLT. Great, great, just what we need. Yeah, a gay boy doing all the ingenue shit. I could never play these roles on Broadway. So I'm going to sing all a funny girl on Carousel and make you guys pay to see it. But not if I'm directing. J- I mean, JLT, yeah, lifelong fan with this show for me as well. Even though I did not see her in it, I got into the cast recording right before she did 
Wicked and I had seen yeah. her in Footloose live. So I remember when she replaced Kristen Chenoweth in Wicked, that was like a very big deal for a lot of us because Tony nominee coming in, we're like, oh, they're going to like, we're going to do luxury casting for these replacements from here on out. And then it was never that luxurious ever again. Always talented women, but never like Tony nominee so-and-so, yeah. the new Glinda. Um, But I mean, you- The well, first replacements are like a whole different sure and I, in a hot hit show. And I think they were also figuring out like, how like how long of legs do we have after the original cast leaves? Is this something that's only a yeah. big hit for the first two years? Is, is this going to be a 10 year run? And they learned and pretty she quickly. was so that was a smart move to cast her because you don't think of her as a Kristen Chenoweth type. Mm. So for her to go on, you know, do Wicked and be the second Glinda, like she's she looks more like Billy Burke. She's a bigger woman. Like she's tall. She has, yeah. you know, height. She's not like this little cute little nothing she's like a woman yeah um and so it was fun to see glinda like that and then you know it gives them flexibility moving forward that they don't have to have a kristen chenoweth impersonator you know after another yeah she was a good transitional uh glinda in that sense because she is like cheno she is a very funny soprano like geniusly funny and she doesn't do manic she does very smart comedy like i she could do insane comedy if she wanted to if it called for it but i remember because i saw cheno and, and i saw jlt i made it a point to see channel t and then i didn't see wicked again for like 17 years um okay. yeah but every glinda after jennifer laura thompson stopped making glinda a person in act one they made her like a five-year-old which i always hated watching videos of everyone else after her jlt's kept the one thing she kept of channel was like glinda's act one She's vapid, but she's still a human being. And that's what makes it similar to like the hope and all the Urinetown stuff. It's like, it makes it funny because Glinda doesn't know that she's funny. She's, it's very real for her. Yeah. Like her logic is insane. And to watch Jennifer Laura Thompson just play like, yes, two plus two does equal pink. And the audience just like So laughing. 10 out of 10 for Jennifer Laura Thompson. Absolutely. This, spons- this podcast is sponsored by Jennifer, Jennifer Laura, Laura Thompson, Thompson fan club. Well, I think we found out who our diva is, who's going to close us out tonight. Did you forget we close out every episode with a diva mark? I did forget. Yes. Well, in your defense, it's been a solid 9,000 years since you've last been on the podcast. I haven't done the, this podcast since you keep asking me to do shows that I like, don't really know that well. Like, no, uh, no, I gave you options this time. You picked your Yeah, own. and I don't, and all the, all the, not all the good ones, all the ones I knew you said other people took them. It's true. They did take them. Uh, okay. How about this? How about this? you lovely lovely bitch who i hate and love very dearly great the next series i'm mm-hmm. gonna run to your stupid gay face and go mark here's the I next get, series first and pick. i'll get it's probably gonna be something weird that i also don't know or care about it's gonna be like shows that are based on shakespearean novel and you can just go <laughs> shakespearean <home> and- novels <laughs> it's gonna be some bullshit where my options are to talk about like hair or you can talk about Marat Saad you can talk about Rosa yes. and Gilden that are dead you're like um what we want you to really talk about here tonight is Tale of Two Cities <laughs> the musical no I'll and make I sure it's only a good really one. talk about act one to be totally honest <laughs> I can only tell you about the fake musical of Tale of Two Cities that was done in the movie Simple Wish with Martin Short and Mara Wilson wow I'm not I'm sorry I missed that many people did Okay, uh, back to urine town. Back to urine town. Back to urine town. Um, I don't know. 
I, I just love all the Officer Lockstock, Little Sally interactions. And clearly Broadway did too, because they were recurring characters for the Easter bonnet every year. Oh my God. And man, was that funny. So to explain it to the people at home, at the Broadway Cares Easter bonnet, it's at the, used to be at the new, I think it's still at the new Amsterdam Theater. And all the Broadway shows do presentations and um, Officer Lockstock and Little Sally. And it was Jen Cody and I can't remember whoever the understudy was. Yeah. Um, and they they were our hosts for the evening or the afternoon. And they just like talk shit about every Broadway show, every Broadway star. It was so mean spirited and amazing. Mm-hmm. And it was like, it was like for three years yeah. at least, I think. That's yeah. when I used Pro- to like. Year, probably, yeah. They, they might've done it for another year or two after you're in town closed. And then probably like. Yeah. I think after, it was after- mostly after you're in town closed. I don't, maybe it was the, the first year was their last year on Broadway. And then mm-hmm. they did it for the next couple of years and was like a blast yeah such a funny jen cody's pretty brilliant she is i mean people definitely were looking forward to it it was you know definitely a roasting of of everything and was really but like Lockstock and little sally because of sort of the dichotomy of their of their size of their vocal types of their age so to speak and their different uh perspectives with her innocence and his world weariness it just it always just made a good blend and because you're in town is a bit of a smart assy show they could afford to be smart assy because they come on stage and everyone's like okay here we go they're gonna make jokes about all of us and it, it's you know like when you go to a roast you know you're gonna get dragged for filth so you you just got to go and knowing that anything's on the table and just have good fun with it which for a while people did um but there's i don't know there's so, so much about their blend in this show that's so fascinating to me and like especially because officer lockstock for all intents and purposes is one of the show's villains even though he's also the narrator. And it's not a villain we don't like, you know, yeah. and the audience like really likes, it's not a villain you boo at. Yeah, like he's not Hans or whatever in Frozen. <laughs> Hans and Frozen, yeah, or, you know, boo. Captain Hook. Yeah, uh, Mrs. Nears, all those villains. No, he's, his Lockstock is more, he carries out the injustice, but he's not necessarily in charge of it all. But, and also on top of that, I guess because we—he's the one who has all the insight into the show. I don't know. There's like there's a weird thing where it's like we trust him, even though he is responsible for a lot of the murders that happen in, at your in town. Uh, and he also—I mean, love, love a murder in a musical. Yeah, he also I mean, again. He also has some of my favorite lines when Act Two begins, and he's, you know, saying, you know, people don't know what your intent is. There's a lot of confusion. That's why we like it. A little boy once asked me, "Is your intent actually a nice place to live? Uh, gingerbread houses along golden frothy canals." Like Venice, only different. <laughs> I, I, for some reason, that line gets me. Like Venice, only different. Only different. I think. It, like Venice, only different. I didn't say yes. I didn't say no either. I, I. It's like the kind of weird that just fucking is up my alley, and it's the kind of. So okay, the thing actually we should talk about, because uh, we do have we do have a bit more time. Yes. Yeah. You're you're oh, we're is, fine. Yeah. Great. Amazing. Mark asked uh, before we recorded everybody. Uh, how much time I thought we needed. And when I told him how long the last couple of episodes went, he, I'm pretty sure you were about to unfriend me on all social media. Just not because, not because you were going to go that long, but because I don't think you wanted to be associated with anybody who would ever create a podcast that would go that long. Well, it's just like, even when I released my podcast, Little Me Growing Up Broadway on the Broadway Podcast Network, available on, on streaming platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have, I release an episode and it's over an hour, I'm like, oh, no one's going to listen to this. Well, but sometimes I just, you know, 
I'm just talking to someone who played Annie and I've got lots of questions. As well, you should. Here's the thing though. I've now put myself into a corner, Mark, because I now do these long form episodes and you were on the Matilda one, which I think was like an hour and 30, maybe an hour and 40. And I'll, I'll do these super long episodes, like really long episodes. And then I'll go, okay, the next one should be a lot shorter. Like this one was close to three. This one, let's try to make it an hour and 45. And people won't listen to the hour and 45 one as quickly. And I think part of it is people, my listeners now go, oh, if it's under two hours, they didn't have much to say. And I'm like, no, I'm like, no, we tried to be like really concise this time. I tried to have fewer tangents or like my guest had somewhere to be. So we tried to just cover everything as soon as possible. But I, like, I've had listeners DM me being like, oh, this one was only an hour and 30. Like, was there Is nothing everything to talk okay about? at home? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, no, I, it's so funny. Like even recently when I'm in recording, I'm like at the 45 minute mark. And I'm like, let me wrap this up. I'm like, I don't have time to do this. And no one has time to listen to this. So yeah. we, the episodes of little me are getting shorter and shorter. They're getting little. Eventually it's just going to be like say? me playing one song from a cast album being like, bye guys. See you next week. <laughs> Certainly I, would I w- be easier. I would <laughs> listen to that podcast in a heartbeat. Great. Who's your most recent uh, guest? Um, the most recent episode um, is Danielle Brisois, who was Molly in the uh, original cast of Annie, and then went on to be the star of uh, the Archie Bunker's Place. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she was on All in the Family, and she was on every 80s sitcom. And uh, we had a really fun chat about her career. And she also run, she wrote Pocketful of Sunshine and Unwritten with Natasha Benningfield. Like she's a, like an incredible songwriter now and um that's my most recent episode molly's slaying the game i heard she taps up a damn storm in that tony performance and does- she sure does and that's because she tapped and they yeah. like all those orphans like she had a choice to pick her orphan name mm-hmm. um you know like all it's kind of it's so fascinating to be involved in something that has had such a huge life yeah. and there's no escaping it it's not like oh i was on broadway and thou shalt not and that's your only broadway credit it doesn't really come back to haunt you much Mm-hmm. Um, except in your nightmares. But like, if you were in the original cast of Annie, there ain't no escape in that. No, especially one of the original orphans. It's not like, oh, I was in the original cast of Annie and I was uh, Cecile and in, uh, in yeah. I think I'm going to like it here. It's like, no, I was fucking Molly. And um, also like, it's every, like every school does, like you can't, you yeah. don't, you know, Annie's constantly on your television. Obviously I'm an Annie stan. And uh, you know, it's, I think it was, so many, this is not what we're not on the Annie podcast, but gonna, we'll get back to it. I swear. It just, it was everybody's gateway drug who loves musical theater. And so I have such a great affection for what that musical has done for so many people who mm-hmm. are in this business and me included. I would love if we had a production of Annie again, like the original that was cast with, for lack of a better term, weirdos. Because that original cast is a bunch of big personalities. And Martin Charnin made it a point when casting the orphans throughout the entire run. He didn't want cutesy musical theater kids. He wanted, you know. You want a real kids. Yeah, real you kids. You wanted kids who look like maybe they lost a tooth in a fight. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think she, the, uh, what's her name? Danielle was missing a tooth on the Tony Awards, something like that. I think that's uh, probably weird. Yeah, right. there were a couple of missing teeth in those orphans originally. But I bring this up to connect it back to Urinetown, where that is all good good hosting. It's like I've done this before. It that's I mean that's an original company filled with personalities and oddballs and you know people who've gone on to major success since, uh, who had minor success before. I mean Megan Lawrence was in the original ensemble who would go on to get a Tony nomination for Pajama Game, and that's why and she was pregnant, and that's why that character is pregnant. 
And mm-hmm. that is why Jen Cody was pregnant when she replaced her mm-hmm. uh, in that original cast so that she could go have her baby. Yep. Yep. So like, how cool if you're like Megan Lawrence's kid and you're like, that's why that character is pregnant. Every that's time. Me. Every time. Do they, does the character give birth during I See a River? Is that what they usually do? I don't remember that. It would make sense. It would make sense on for many reasons. Oh yeah, because then she has the baby. Yeah, because yes. the the last line of the show is Hail Malthus. Yes, and so it would make sense. About that? Oh, we're absolutely going to talk about Hail Malthus. But it makes sense for there to be a, a newborn baby on stage as everyone's dying because the whole point of the end of the show is once you're in good company is destroyed and Cladwell is uh, killed and Hope takes over after Bobby's been killed. Is everyone pees for free. Everyone has justice and hope and love. And within a very short amount of time, all the water gets used up because even though Cladwell was an evil money grubbing man, ruthless, ruthless corporate America man, his tactics helped preserve their water supply, which was drying up every day because there hadn't been water in years. And so even, and they, this is something that's hinted at throughout the show, even Acts 1 finale, when he's talking to, when he's singing to Bobby, like, oh, you want happy, this is, you want like, but what about tomorrow? And Bobby goes, but what about today? And he's like, no, 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 you always have to think about it tomorrow. That's, an, that's even a recurring line in the show uh, with the stink years. And they talk about the stink years. People lived like there was no tomorrow because there wasn't a tomorrow, but there is always a tomorrow in some way. And tomorrow comes, like Annie says, tomorrow does come. See how, seeing how bringing it all back tomorrow. together. Comes also Lemis and Lemis. Yeah, it all connects. It's all connected. When the tomorrow comes at the end of the show, the water is gone, and Hope tries to bask still in the love of everyone by gaslighting them into thinking that they are all the water they need. You, the w- glass of water. The is water's inside, inside of you. Don't you know what you are, Mrs. Strong? A river. A river? That's right. We <laughs> all are. But Hope eventually does die, and. You know, we have little Sally going, what kind of a musical is this? The good guys take over and everything falls apart. The music's so happy. And <laughs> she tells Officer Lockstock, no one's going to want to see the musical. Officer Lockstock says it's because people don't want to hear that their way of life is unsta- unsustainable, which is true. And little Sally says, just to cut the tension, that and the title's awful. And they finish with a reprise of You're in Town. Lockstock says, hail Malthus. Thank you and good night. Malthus. Why hail Malthus, Mark? So isn't Malthus, uh, isn't that about uh, how people will always, there'll always be poor people, there'll always be starving people, there'll always be thirsty people, and that there'll always be someone above them, right? But Malthus is a writer? Malthus was an 18th century economist and writer. Okay. And it's, yes, that is the gist of it. It's part of- So uh, like, I'm not as dumb as I look. I'm not as dumb as I am. Uh it's it's a work he had called an essay on the principle of population as it affects the future improvement of society and this came out around 1798 and basically what he said was uh as long as humanity keeps producing at an at a rate greater than the goods that the earth can provide there will always be the haves and the have-nots but what he also said was because it came off of the heels of Ben Franklin saying, or after the Declaration of Independence, that like America's population was going to quadruple in like five years or something like that. And all this was like, so that's bad. That should not like that should not be something to brag about. 
but he also said and this is something that was also that is true and remains to be true he's like he's like humanity needs to curb its population he said he called marriage uh i think he called he said something about like marriage was an evil or something like that because people get married and have too many kids that they can't afford to have and uh leads resources but he also said you know humanity's never gonna stop fucking and making babies and we're gonna keep overpopulating he goes the good news is that earth finds a way every time to cut our population down when we get too big for our britches he goes there's famine there's disease there are epidemics so you know he was referring to like the great plague which you know killed off a third of the world in like 50 years or something like that but you know many other diseases and illnesses and epidemics and as we've learned happens fairly recently fairly recently it keeps happening it's not it's not a lot people dying is not a laughing matter but it is funny how we get smarter but never learn as mark has told us you get to a certain age can't teach anyone nothing there's nothing there's nothing anyone can teach me yeah but that's the dark side to the satire of you're in town and it's despite all the amazing jokes about the structure of musical theater despite all the breaking of the fourth walls the silliness of it all there is a dark undercurrent to it and that is sort of said at the end with the hail malthus which always gives me a bit like of a weird culty vibe at the end like we, almost like yeah we've like we're this in the cult. cult yeah we've watched this cult perform for us at the end of the night and it's not until the last beat that we realize that oh shit i'm with uh like scientology doing a, an easter play about aliens i will say hail malthus is my not my favorite way to end this thing mm-hmm. because that's not a norm that's not something everybody knows no and we've just delivered this beautiful great well-crafted musical and then the last thing the audience hears is something that confuses them and i'm sure that's on purpose these are not yeah. dumb people who wrote this show but i just think if i was the director of this original production i would say we need something else there i think this is too inside and people are gonna be like, what, what, what did he just say? Mm-hmm. And to me, that's not a win um, when it's too, too smart for its own good. Yeah. It's Thoughts? double, I was a double-edged sword. I think you're right. I also understand if that's sort of the point and if that's what they want to do, then they've succeeded. Uh, whether it works for everyone is up for debate. Doesn't work for you clearly. Uh definitely confuses it might inspire some people to look it up but people also can be very dumb and just choose to think that it's a random thing also i definitely had a flip phone when i saw this show Mm -hmm. um a nokia flip and so there was i wasn't going to get home remember mothis try to get onto aol look it up or go to the dick get an old dictionary life used to be very different sir <laughs> i know i know i know dear it was so hard to be you back in i the... just yeah the time i got back home to astoria with, i couldn't remember mathis with your water drinking my your water were your my water my daughter oh shit are we on caps again uh <laughs> <laughs> what a nice cool mint help if i shoved your head up your ass but oh god um, little me growing up broadway available on all streaming <laughs> podcast networks just me talking to other people for a much shorter amount of time no one's gonna listen they're gonna be like i only want to hear mark talk for over two hours if it's yes, under two hours so i'm not interested you can come work for me i never shut the up you can hear mark talk to people much more famous than i and it's very fun to listen to okay. you've had some I'm very impressive people you. i thank you so much 
Um, but back to back to you, baby. Back to me. It is my time. My time, my moment. But I, in, in my research for this, I something I love to do with some of these shows, especially if it's around the early 2000s, I like to go back onto Broadway World and use the search bar to see what people were saying at the time during the run or slightly after the run. What it's did we find wild. out? Mm-hmm. Well, what did we find out? Well, Year in Town was very beloved. Uh, there were some replacements that were not beloved people you know obviously it's with fandom original companies are become sacred and any replacements are terrible we've gotten a little bit better about that since but uh a certain tv actor tom cavanaugh was he was no it was very big at the moment because he had just wrapped playing the role of ed Mm -hmm. on ed a show i loved actually very much a lot of people did it was a good show it was a great sweet charming show i don't know if it's streaming anywhere but Maybe really Peacock, because I think it was NBC, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. He came in to be Bobby Strong and was such a disaster that I think he only did it for like a month, maybe two. Yeah. They had to bring Hunter Foster in again for three weeks while they found a, a, a better replacement. Because Tom, apparently Kavanaugh could handle the scenes, but he could not sing. And yeah, that it's is a not- very big male sing. It's not like- an easy score for a TV star to come in and do once. No, you cannot act your way through Run Freedom Run. You have to sing the shit out of it. Run Freedom Run Run away I'm afraid you have to run, 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 run Run Freedom Run away I'm surprised that I never understand anyone saying yes to something they actually cannot do. It just blows my absolute yeah. Beanie Feldstein mind. I mean, I love the idea of people, of actors wanting to challenge themselves, but there has to be a sense of humility and self-awareness to know what is challenging and what is just simply beyond your reach. And you also, yeah. but not just them. I also want to put the blame on the actors. There are people in charge as well who have to kind of, make the tough call of whether the actor can do it or not. And I don't love this toxic positivity in the community where it's like, well, let's make it a safe space for everyone. I'm like, well, no, some people just don't have, it's not, not a, it takes. Yeah, yeah. It's not a slate on the talent that they do have, but some people have different skill sets. Like you would not cast pa- a young Patty Lapone as Hope Cladwell in, in you're in town. It's That's also not-, not your high school musical. So there's just like not a space for everybody. And that is just sadly the truth. And yes. uh, it's, in, of course, this industry needs to be more inclusive as it grows and changes. But, um, you know, if you can't sing, you can't do it. Yeah. If you ca- if you cannot deliver the song as it needs to be delivered, that's part of the job requirement. That's, you know? And that's just it. It's in the same way. It's like, I shouldn't probably do surgery on you because I'm pretty good with a pair of scissors or yeah. a knife. You know what I mean? Like I'm well, creative, and, but I should every, not move your spleen. Also, every musical is built differently. There are roles where you can more act your way through it than sing through it. Like and then, Charles Shaughnessy, when he joined the same cast of You're in Town, Segway, as um, Cladwell be Caldwell, Caldwell be Cladwell. Caldwell, yeah. It's, yeah. Um, she's and my daughter, I saw she's my him, sister. And I think they added a nanny joke. I, it's just coming to me right now. That's I, That, I that sounds some, all right. I need someone to confirm this. Um, but Mr. it was like Mr. Sheffield is in the office. It was, he was fun, actually. I'll bet he was fun. He's a, he's a very fun, dry actor. And that's a role that you can 
pretty much act your way through. There's like one big money note for him at the end of Mr. Cladwell that I'm sure they found a way to work around. Mm-hmm. They probably added it for John Cullum, who's like, I am a trained baritone singer. I am 75 and I still got it. You will give me my my. Now, G. John Cullum and John McMartin, those are different people. They are very different right? people. Okay. Yes, very different people. One <laughs> the of other them- night I was having drinks with a friend and she goes, so what is N. Juliet? Is it six? <laughs> I mean, the gays do Peloton to both of them. So yeah, they're the same thing. Is it six? Makes me laugh. It's, it's fun. No, uh, first of all, of John McMartin and John Column, one is dead and one's alive. And I never saw them both in the same place. So I'm just telling you that. Uh, they both did Tina Fey shows. John McMartin was on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and John Column did 30 Rock. And John Column had two Tony Awards, has two Tony Awards. He's still alive. I saw John Column in 110 in the Shade and in Casa Valentina and then in Scottsboro Boys as well. That That was a man who kept fucking chugging along up until along. yeah i saw him in all those things and many other things he just yeah. seems to have never stopped uh, doing the thing which is yeah. amazing I, yeah he's someone who so sort of kind of recent. wakes up every day he's like i'll go do a broadway show and it's like you're 95 john he's like and I'm, and i'll be there and i'll be there um, perfect attendance too anyway but charles shaughnessy was fun and that that's that would have been a great place to put tv stars in yeah. the show yeah not the As one that requires the big thing to the, hard, the hardest male vocal I've heard in many, many years. Yeah, definitely the big male sing of that season for sure. Like, I mean, again, Run Freedom Run, that's a big old thing. You do, I don't know how you work your way around the, I said freedom, freedom, like how do you act your way through that without the notes? Yeah, I don't think you, I don't think that's an option. No, no. Although I do love, there There are visual aids to that song. Like when you take, um. I think it's is it Becky Two Shoes where he takes the brace off of her, like you know. Oh my god! And that, she can, but she can't walk. She can't walk. He takes the braces off her as if he could heal her. Yes. But then she goes to take a step. She falls right the fuck down, yep. and that is my brand of comedy. Absolutely. <laughs> Which makes it even better is like they don't, they I do forgot. not tease you that she might possibly be able to walk. It's the buildup is he takes it off and she. She feels the spirit. So you see on her face before she takes the step that she thinks she can walk. And on the very first step, she falls. The very first step. <laughs> so good. And, so good. You know, Airplane. And, and no one is embarrassed by it. Everyone's just like, okay. And we put the brace back on her. Then I'll yeah. pick her back up. Wait, wait a moment. I mean, that direction is so genius. I mean, there's yeah. so many things that I'm sure John Rando came up with that uh, or executed beautifully or like it'll be funnier if you do this um, yeah. because when you have people that are that funny in the ensemble like Rick Crom is a funny guy mm-hmm. and everybody's as funny as him they're gonna come up with a lot of stuff so then it becomes a director's job to manage all of these comedians and their ideas and this is the kind of show where you bring your thing to it and so um, that's sort of why I'm excited to eventually direct this at some point but you know, the management of all of those comedians is quite a task and and was expertly done on this show. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite Tony speeches is Joanna Gleason for Into the Woods. And she talks about how the cat, the original cast of Into the Woods are like all a bunch of acrobats who they all like their job is just catch each other all the time. It's never about who gets the moment to shine, but rather like, how do you set up the person in your scene? Yeah. Uh, which is, a very brilliant 
uh, image and very perfectly describes that cast and why that original Into the Woods cast is so, you know, gold standard. And it's similar with this, with this Urinetown. And I feel like that's sort of how John Rando controlled everything was rather than like, okay, how do I, uh, you know, give everyone something that makes them feel okay, but rather like, okay, it has to be an ensemble. Everyone's got to support each other. It's always about leading into the next joke, which means sometimes you have to set it up so someone else can get it. Someone will set you up. Like it's always just about shifting the power and the focus to each person all the time, which just makes it, uh, I don't know, just makes it interesting to me in a way that not many comedies are now, which brings me to my next topic. Something that I think you're in town ushered in, in the, on Broadway that no show has been able to do as well since is the meta commentary musical, the spoof parody musical. Uh, we see it with spam a lot, something rotten. We see it in pieces in other shows like dirty around scoundrels makes, uh, you know, fourth wall break jokes. Uh, this idea of commenting on what's happening on stage as if, all of a sudden, like all the acting has gone away and like a real person just like, wait a second, like the scenery's moving or something like that. We've seen in Book of Mormon as well. And I don't think any show has been able to do it as well as you're in town. That's my hot take. Yeah, I would tend to agree with it. And also, I think this is one of the first mainstream musicals on Broadway that's commenting on musicals in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, I might be wrong. I haven't done enough. No, I, I think there, it but... is. But yeah. I think it's from what I can gather, it's the first Broadway musical to send up musical theater at least yeah as you said like this because in the way the producers had done it which is after this right and um it's it's six months before this oh although although you're in town did premiere in new york at the fringe two years before the producers so we'll still give the edge but even you know the producers is a a different kind of animal but yeah i mean that's uh you know the reason why forbidden broadway isn't really a thing anymore because at that point they were the ones sending up musicals and musicals took themselves very seriously. And when they were a comedy, they were seriously in that comedy or whatever. And so um, once it started to happen constantly after you're in town um, and the producers in uh, spam a lot, especially um, Shrek, it just kept happening where they commented on that they were in a musical and that made for in Broadway less funny and less funny and less funny because they're, uh, they were doing it on stage in so many shows. Yeah. Um, There's even a song in forbidden Broadway of Spamalot, they're doing the song that goes like this. Yeah. And the joke is they do the song as written for the first half. And then they change the lyrics and like, wait a second, why are we singing the song as written? Oh, because Spamalot stole our gig. Yes. Yeah. And that is very true. It is very true. Well, so the thing about Town is the writing itself doesn't really spoof any specific musical. Uh, I mean, there are homages, as we mentioned, like, you know, to Vial and Les Mis and Fiddler and West Side Story. But they don't make jokes specifically about those shows. No one's like, well, it's just one day more. Or yeah. Or, or it's all in the staging, which yeah. is what's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all in having a reaction to meeting someone that is over the top. Mm-hmm. It is all in uh it's not all in the waving a flag in the lame is section. Um, that's where we're getting the the West Side story, the snaps. Yeah. You know, that's where the spoof comes. It doesn't come from like hitting it. Uh, I mean, a little bit with Lockstock because he does talk about, well, in a musical, this happens. Um, but it still doesn't feel quite like we're commenting on specific musical theater moments. 
Yeah. No, not yeah, lock, in the staging. Lockstock talks about Lockstock's the, so like the, what makes it so brilliant is that when Lockstock's talking about musicals, the jokes that he that are given to Lockstock, or so, rather than Lockstock making a joke, the jokes that Lockstock is given, uh, they are always just about how musicals are constructed, how they work. So, for example, when Little Sally says we don't talk about hydraulics, you know, with this water shortage, you think we would talk about like laundry bathing things like that like why wouldn't why aren't we talking about that and so officer lockstock says well sometimes you know how do i how do i best describe this sometimes in a musical it's best to focus on one big thing than a bunch of little things it uh helps the audience focus and it's easier to write and i mean the literally joke, almost the line verbatim i have it open to that page. i am i am insane i'm a freak of nature i hate myself yeah, i'm but- very concerned about your brain and your future partners <laughs> what future partners so the 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 thing is that it's it's less funny if he's like you see little sally sometimes in a musical when you're in eight, uh, 19th century france and everyone's poor and on a turntable like that's not as funny it would be Correct. funny in the moment but like he's what he's doing is he's just talking about the economics of musical theater the economic storytelling all the structure the tropes the format all of that stuff and it's funny because it's true and we know it's true because we watch you're in town adhere to it mm-hmm. so and and adhere to it really well so we can't blame them for being smug because they are doing everything that they are calling out and they're doing it very well uh they just it's just a very intelligent uh commentary as opposed to, as you were saying, you know, like with Spamalot or with Shrek, where they'll do a moment that's like very specific to a, uh, a very specific musical. Or like with something rotten, the whole like, it's a musical number, which everyone was so up in arms about. You know, I, I saw something rotten twice, about nine months apart. And when I saw it in previews, I thought it was quite funny. And then nine months in, I saw it again. And I was like, oh, this doesn't hold up as well for me because all the jokes are just, you know, name dropping. Cats, chess, lame as Rob, a chorus line, and I, it's it's it, once the sh- the surprise of what the next show they're going to name drop is is gone, it's less funny. Whereas you're in town, it's all part of the structure. It's embedded into the story and the characters, which is really really hard to do. It's I mean it's pretty genius. And I was just talking to a friend about it last night. They're like, why hasn't there been a big revival of this show? And I, you know, I just think it was so specific to what it was. I think it has to remain really small. I don't know if there's an interpretation that is a that will top what it originally was. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, it's such a commentary on this musical that it's weird to all of a sudden put do something different and have like a huge cast or a huge set or do something really strange with it. It's sort of like when you hit it right the first time, I don't know if how desperate it it's up for a new you're in town interpretation unless we do it in like a bathroom in central park you know yeah site specific or something it's yeah it is the double-edged sort of when the original production really just gets it completely and hits everything hard all all we could really do is put up that production again with a right cast the only thing i can think of is like jennifer samard is pennywise i think that would be great casting i can't think of anyone else though um which i don't know what that says about the state of 
musical theater Broadway right now. We could right think now. of people we sat down for a minute. Sure. It's and it's really... late in March. It's late. We've been talking for a while. Mark's got someplace to be later I on. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure Michaela Diamond, my girl, she'll be the greatest hope you've ever seen. Oh, yeah, she would be See? good. See? Yeah, and then you just find another young, good-looking, amazingly talented man. I'm sitting right here. You don't need to keep saying all the things about me. I'm right here. And then, you know, maybe Charles Shaughnessy as Claude Welpen. Bring him back. Bring him back. No, at this point, Tom Cavanaugh comes back as Cladwell. Oh my god, that's great. We do it. We do it right this time. Colin Hanks. Oh, I get Tom Cavanaugh and Colin Hanks very confused currently. They are the new John McMartin other John Cullum. John Cullum. <laughs> Which is the white man version of Cheetah Rivera, Rita Moreno. Sure. I I would like you to do. The, Bro- the Forbidden Broadway Cheetah is Cheetah, not Rita number, but it's about John Cullum and John McMartin. I would, Cullum I would is Cullum, it. not McMartin. We'll call um, it the nichest thing anyone's ever seen. Yeah, uh, niche, me, you don't say. <laughs> um, yeah, th- so the int- so this show opens soon after, they were supposed to open, I think, the like day after 9-11, and they ended up pushing it back a week. The 13th was their opening. Yeah, yeah. and then they pushed it back, I think, to the 20th. And... They they were able to figure it out. The, the all the reviews were positive, but they all were saying like, "I don't know if New York this is the show New York needs right now." Which is, and you contrast that to Mama Mia's reviews like two weeks later, where everyone's like, "This is so stupid," but it's exactly what everyone needs. So like, yeah. both shows got good reviews, but Mama Mia really got more effusive praise because everyone was like, "Oh, thank God, I have mac and cheese on a stage right now," and so Mama Mia became like the big big hit. But you're in town was able to actually like Millie did great that season too. I mean, yeah, ran three hit musicals in a season is like unheard of and and made made its money back. Something Millie I don't think was able to do until it went out on the road. Uh, And you're in town probably would have run longer. You know why they closed, right? No, uh, something with Henry Miller, right? Yeah, it was at the Henry Miller. The the building above them was getting torn down. Yes. And they had to vacate, which is now the Sondheim Theater. Yes, it is. Go see and Juliet there, but that was uh, the Henry Miller, the original home of the revival of Cabaret and mm-hmm. this production of Urinetown. Yep, I and- do remember that now. And they were thinking of transferring, and then they just kind of closed her out. Yeah, well, because I mean, transfers are expensive, and they they basically Had exhausted. Said- it wasn't like it was an impossible to get into show. Yeah, they, they through smart producing and budgeting, they were able to make a profit. But and they never had a consist a consecutive number of weeks where they were totally sold out. They had like some really amazing weeks where they were averaging like ninety nine five percent capacity, and then they'd have a week where they were at seventy, and they were able to do fine with that. But yeah, it was never an impossible ticket, and so they were like, we can't, we cannot afford to shut down for a month, move to a new theater, and like keep the momentum going. It's costly, and we just recouped. Like, let's just close this while it's made money, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, they did lose musical to Millie but they did win score book and director which I think it might be the only musical I think you're right I think it's the only musical to win I think there might be one other Opal Parade too best book best score there are shows that have won score and book but not musical but not score book and director Parade did not win director no no yeah so I guess this is maybe it score book director Um, but score and book is still crazy to win score and book and not yeah. When musical is crazy in the same way it was the Aida season 
to be nominated for best book, best musical, and not even get a nomination for a best score, best book, but not get a nomination for best musical is insanity. Yeah, same thing with Legally Blonde. It's like, you liked the writing, you didn't like the show. The thing with the, with the Urinetown wins, it's like, you could argue possibly. Sometimes when you get to musical, it's like the parts are, the whole is greater than the parts or whatever. Uh, you know, sometimes that's how like a jukebox musical like Jersey Boys wins or how something like uh, Crazy For You wins when, you know, it's got a recycled score or Spamalot ends up winning even though, because, you know, Spelling Bee and Piazza split the writing awards. But- for your in town to win for both elements of its writing and for its direction. So it's like, not only do you like the material, you like how it all came together with the direction, but you ultimately gave it to Millie. It was just a very political thing, obviously, because as you mentioned, like, you know, Mamma Mia was definitely the runaway feel good hit of the season, but the Tonys couldn't bring themselves to vote for Mamma Mia. Might go there. Yes. Yeah. So like, we'll go for the show. That's a love letter to New York city. That also happens to be feel good. Uh, and we won't reward it for its writing. Cause it's writing is fine but not as yeah. good as you're in town and millie also got a lot of flack for having half an original score the other half was stuff from the movie and then standards that they incorporated which is very impressive i always thought that that score was impressive based on how it all sounded like one whole unit but yeah that's it on you town that's all we that's all she wrote um there's no wait ways through how do we close it out well so here hail malthus thank you and good night yes your what was your favorite joke in the show you said Mine is uh, in this darkness. I can't, you can't see me at all. Yeah, it's it's a great one. I, anything Lock, Stock and Sally have together after um, Follow Your Heart, when we see them up in the the catwalk and little Sally goes, she loves him, doesn't she? Offers her Lock, Stock and he goes, of course she does little Sally. He's the hero of the show. She has to love him. It's like he gets so moved by the love story, but also commenting on, she's got to love him. He's the lead. I just, I love those. Yeah. I love those jokes, faxing and copying. I also love um, your father uh, mentioned the size of your heart, Ms. Cladwell, but he failed to mention the size of your beauty. Does beauty have a size officer in some countries? (laughs) You're a good, you're a good girl. Hope I was one too, before I met your father, a good girl. You heard me. It's (laughs) Oh, also I would be Adam Ellsbury would be remiss if I didn't quote this one when hope eventually takes over in act two and she shows up in Cladwell's office and surprises him and the Senator or, and uh, no, sorry, Cladwell and his assistant and his assistant goes, Ms. Cladwell, what an unexpected surprise. And she goes, is there any other kind? Dun, dun, dun. So good. So good. Um, we have a new game here, Mark. Ooh. Speaking of my restraining orders. Who Lives, Who Dies, Janine Tesori, and Six Degrees of Sally Murphy. They're both the same game. They're both just Six Degrees. Great. We have to get Six Degrees to Janine Tesori from Urinetown and Six Degrees to Sally Murphy from Urinetown. I could do Sally Murphy if you want to do Janine Tesori. Oh, God. I Sure, I can. Um, do you get to do Sally Murphy while I think about Janine Tesori? Sure. Well, Sally Murphy is going to be easy. Jeff McCarthy is in Urinetown. Jeff McCarthy was in Sideshow with Norm Lewis who was in Wild Party with Sally Murphy. Don't you have to do it in six? You have to do it in six or less. You have to do it in six or less. Six is your max. Great. Um, uh, Jennifer Laura Thompson was in your town, obviously. And she was in, um, (laughs) I haven't really thought any of this out. I'm just going to go with it. Um, And uh, she was in, I can't. This is a lot to think about. Oh, I, oh, right. I know it. I know. I know. I know. All I know. right. You do it. I, I just thought of it. 
Jennifer Laura Thompson is in Your Time. She was in Dear Evan Hansen with Michael Park, who was the original flick. The flick in oh, Violet. Ma- 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 written Monty, by sorry, no, the original sorry. Monty. Monty in Violet. Yes. Oh, yeah, he's not flick. Flick, uh, um, flick he's is- Monty. Yeah, Monty. Yeah. The original Monty in Violet. Michael so. McElroy. And then we do, and how do you get to Michael McElroy? Um, yes, that's good. See, not that hard to do. Yeah. And then Michael McElroy in Wild Party with Sally Murphy. And uh, Lee Hawking. <laughs> and Lee Hawking, yeah. Is, yeah, Michael McElroy, he's the other brother, right? He's a, yeah. yeah. He's the brother. Oh, God. Talk about another amazing original cast. Oh, God. I love that Wild Party. We've talked about this. This is why we're soulmates, bitch. I know. I love it. It's so good. If you don't know the real wild party, give it a listen. Hashtag my wild party. Um, so as Mark knows, we close out every episode with a diva. We already decided nine years ago, Jennifer Laura Thompson. Mark, where can people find you if you want them to find you? Um, you can find me waiting for Jennifer Laura Thompson at the stage door. No, um, you'll never find me one at a stage door ever. Okay. Um, you can follow me at at Mark Tuminelli, T-U-M-M-I-N-E-L-L-I, um, over at Instagram. And you could listen to me talk to other people um, on the Little Me Podcast. Um, and that's just, you can also follow us at Little Me Podcast on mm-hmm. Instagram. And uh, you can, if you have a kid who likes to sing, dance, or act, you can send them to Broadway Workshop and visit broadwayworkshop.com. And that's my company. And if you're hiring a director for anything, you can email me at my first name dot my last name at gmail.com. Brilliant. If you want to follow me, just go to Instagram, Matt Koplick, usual spelling. It's mostly just my reviews these days. Uh, and then occasionally promoting the podcast, but I'll try to come up with some extra original content for y'all. If you like the podcast- Nudes, nudies. Nudes. That's all the world wants is my needs. Uh, if you like the podcast, five-star rating please and thank you some nice new reviews would be glorious the algorithm is a bitch and we're a slave to it the good lord made us so we'd adhere to an algorithm uh please we we uh and join us next week for i don't know what because we're doing this whole thing out of order and scheduling and recording this thing has been a monster and i don't I have four episodes lined up recording. I don't know in what order. So I don't know what's the next episode. So just buckle up, everyone. You never know what's coming. Yeah. It could be a play. could be a musical. Uh, if it's a play, but you better you believe But you definitely want to hear about it. Yeah. You don't you want to hear about Proof or Top Dog Under Dug? Uh, n- me personally? No, not you. I don't care what you think or care about. <laughs> I love Proof. Good play. It is a good play. Uh, no, she'll be talked about. Proof will be talked about. Is it proof or doubt? One of the two. I can't remember which. It's either proof or doubt. Um, I saw a legendary performance of doubt. Legendary performance? Yeah. Cherry Jones called for line three separate times. Shut the front door. In the middle of the summer after she won the Tony. It was mm-hmm. like way into the run. And they had to bring her the pages of the script on stage. And she did. She said, ladies and gentlemen, if I can please use these pages, I can get through the rest of the scene. And she did it. And then she came back like nothing happened in the next oh, scene. It was wild. That is an amazing story. I'll I never forget as long as I live. I wish. I only, I saw Elaine Stritch in Night Music twice and she didn't forget her lines either time. She was wonderful. But I was like, oh, what I would give to be at a performance for Elaine Stritch called for line. That'd be great. She, I, she apparently used to say, Bernadette, like she didn't know a line. She's like, you're so cute. <laughs> Yeah, they apparently had to coach the Frederica's 
how uh, to be ready ready to yeah. say all the important lines yeah to be like yes grandmother this the summer night does smile three times and now let us go off stage <laughs> <laughs> and now let us exit, let us exit. oh and- god bless God bless you. God bless Elaine Stritch. God bless your listeners. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. God bless us each and everyone. God bless John Collum, John McMartin. And once again, everyone, thank you so much for making it this far and listening. Join us next week for God knows what. And in the meanwhile, here's a little JLT for you. Takes away JLT. Bye. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.